0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank (laughs) Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents... From the spiral, to the elliptical, to the lenticular, to the irregular, to the quasar's galaxies. Where are we in the cosmic evolutionary picture? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. The following conversations are cosmic conversations with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky.
1: That's right. It is once again time for our cosmic conversations with the most interesting man on the planet, at least the man with the best voice on the planet. He is an edutainer. He is a man with a tremendous amount of knowledge when it comes to space, astronomy, and everything else. It is my great deal of pleasure to welcome the one and only Steve Cates, or as we like to call him, Dr. Sky. Steve, it's great to have you back. I can't believe it's been two weeks.
2: Well, good morning, Frank, and good morning to the listeners. How time does fly. It's amazing as we're already, what, deeper into February. So I'm ready and excited for cosmic conversation.
1: Indeed. Hey, Steve, let me begin before we get to some of the stuff that's in the news, because there's a ton uh, that I want to uh, pick your brain on. My son watches Coco Melon. Are you familiar with Coco Melon? not at all it's a children's <laughs> show the target demographic is I think children between the age of two and five years old and it's a cute enough show they have songs that uh, teach kids mm. about vegetables about brushing your teeth about the alphabet and recently we watched one about the solar system and uh-huh. it and it talked about how there are eight planets in the solar system and it went through what each of the eight planets were and I had to tell my son that was uh, when I was a child. Pluto was also a planet, and there were nine planets in the solar system. So I, exactly. I I told him the next time I spoke to you, I was going to get your take on why Pluto was downgraded. And honestly, if there's any hope of bringing Pluto back.
2: Well, Frank, it's an interesting story. Let's start with Arizona back. February 18, 1930, a professor that I had at New Mexico State, the discoverer of the then planet Pluto, Clyde Tombaugh. He's working up in the lowell observatory you know a very cold place at the time as it is now during the high altitude in the winter and he picks up this particular object that percival lowell the founder of the observatory his life passion after he left his textile business in the east was to help find this elusive object an interloper beyond that of neptune thus pluto the god of the underworld supplied finds it it becomes a big announcement the new york times have this big story about it It was actually named by a young lady who was in England. She gave the name because they like to have the names of all planets, at least from the historical side, after Greek or Roman mythology names. But here we go. In 2006, a large group of people in a group called the International Astronomical Union, kind of like the UN of astronomy, they get together and they never really had a whole quorum to vote on the very subject because the argument was what is the definition of a planet? One of the arguments that was raised by one of the astronomers uh, out in California at Caltech, Mike Brown, was that his argument was the planet Pluto, it crosses the orbit of another object so it doesn't have a distinct, you know, unique orbit unto itself because Pluto at, you know, certain times in history can theoretically come closer than Neptune. But let's look at the whole solar system. Let's say you're looking at a table. And an egg yolk is just sticking up from the top of the table and the rest of it, if it could be, below the table. The solar system is generally flat. Now, if there are any flat earthers listening to us, they may think, i on to something here. But the solar system is relatively flat. So another argument against Pluto was, since all the planets in the solar system lie within four, five, or six degrees along that flat table, Pluto has an exceptional eccentricity of 17 degrees. So moving fast forward on this, They vote to demote it, that is, to what we call a dwarf category because of its apparent size. But they were kind of wrong because when the New Horizons spacecraft went out to Pluto, by the way, with ashes and remnants of Dr. Tombaugh himself, that must have been an exciting ride, they now figure that this is just a dwarf category of objects because it's too small. But we find, Frank, that it's actually a little larger than we thought. But it has five attendant moons around it. And one of the moons of Pluto, just like the Earth's moon, which we always see the same face to it, it's one of those synchronous rotating objects, we find out that the planet, or excuse me, now the dwarf planet Pluto, it now is demoted to a dwarf. But I argue with that too, because once we did this, we had a lot of my lawyer friends, we did like one of these fake trials, and we had the prosecution side for saying, oh, Pluto's not a planet, and we had the defense saying it is. Well, I gotta be honest, and always will be with the audience, I kind of spice the deck of the jury. They were my friends and they (laughs) voted that Pluto was truly a planet. But isn't that interesting? But that's an amazing show, and I'm always honest. I wasn't aware of that show for children. I wish I had watched shows like that. Well, no, I, be, uh, I think there is a lot about. of
1: there is a lot of educational value. I mean, look, don't get me right. wrong. A lot of the episodes are just uh, teaching the kids how to sing "Wheels on the Bus" and things of that nature, and what shapes are. But I thought that was an interesting, an interesting sure. show, interesting. And, and I agree with you on Pluto. And I hope mm-hmm. one day it gets restored. And I've actually um, putting out a poll on Twitter. If people want to, I still call yes. it Twitter. If people want to vote on <laughs> (laughs) Whether or not Pluto should be a planet or not, they can find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano, and make your voice heard. Frank, M O R A N L. M-O-R-A-N-O. Well, Frank, that's
2: interesting, because the kids love it. And here's the simple reason. We do a lot of school programs, you know, my friends and I, and some of the other people that are in my group. And we did the same thing, and we said, why do you think Pluto should be a planet? And they simply, it's so cute, because I wish we had a video of this. Nine out of ten of them would say, you know, it's small, just like me. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And I think that's so cute. What's there not to love about that answer? I was working in, uh, and I wish I could find the audio of this somewhere, and I've looked uh, for hours on end. I was working in radio as a producer when Pluto was demoted, and the the cutest piece of audio that I've ever heard was from a kid. It couldn't have been more than five or six. And, you know, he was uh, doing a a man on the street on the news, and they they Mm -hmm. asked him for his reaction, and he said, oh, nobody can go there anymore because it's no longer a plan. Uh, but the way he said it was quite cute.
2: Quite cute. <laughs> well, Frank, this is even more phenomenal, and adding to your story, I was just at the Barrett Jackson car auction in Scottsdale, why was I there? Because like other people, I love cars. And here I go, I see this gigantic neon sign of the Disney Pluto, so I just had to ask permission to go over the roped area, and they said, well, okay, but that whole item, the Pluto, wow, the big Pluto neon sign, about 10 feet tall, went for
1: like $40,000 beyond my budget, but there's the other Pluto that's just cool, too. The Disney Pluto. <laughs> In- indeed. And uh, enough <laughs> of your delays, uh, Steve Cates. Uh, <laughs> let's get to some serious issues here. By the way, if people have questions, yes. we will take them. 1-800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with uh, a story that uh, Nome Laden uh, broke for us a couple of days ago. The Russian cosmonaut Oleg Kononenko has now broken the world record for the most cumulative time spent in space. And I think this is pretty remarkable, but I can't imagine what this must be like, not only on the human body, but on the human psyche. What do we know about this? I know we both want to go to space. I can't imagine we want to go for as long as Oleg has. Well
2: it's amazing. Vladimir Putin gives him an award. There's a picture circulating on the internet, I guess, from their news agencies. And you see the cosmonauts standing there. This is a previous time because obviously being in space And at that time, he was also a space hero, a hero of the Soviet Union, and now a hero of Russia. But the point of the matter is, this is incredible. 878-plus days, I think, is just what happened on February the 4th is when this record goes into the extreme. But it's incredible. He'll probably go on to do 1,000 days in June and more. But, you know, it's interesting, Frank, and I won't be a spoiler, but I went to see the movie ISS. I don't know if you've seen it. It was kind of interesting, and it was strange, and I'll only give you this much of it because people need to see it for themselves. But what I found fascinating in there is that they're showing you the inside of what looks like a real international space station. And my goodness, you know, I'd love to be a space explorer, like everybody who's listening, I'm sure. Wouldn't that be a wild trip? But you're so right. I mean, people would go up there. I mean, some of the tourists have gone up there and have paid, you know, 20, 40 million dollars to spend maybe 10 days up there. But, oh, my gosh, I don't know how I would handle that. I mean, sleeping in vertical position as you're floating, your arms are hanging up in the air. It does have a deleterious effect. As Scott Kelly who Mm. came back, one of the Americans who was obviously up in space well over 500 days. They're studying this. I mean, they're like human guinea pigs because when they come back, if you watch all the hard landings, as I call them, on land, of course, with the Russians come back with Soyuz. You see what they get, you know, they open up the capsule and here's a person that's been in space, maybe not as long as this gentleman, but they have to literally grab them out of those couches because the body has become so weak. And what happens in space, not to scare people, and I'm not a medical doctor, is that the bones atrophy. You know, you have this opportunity where the bones do not have the same rigidity because you have all these strange things in space, but God bless those people. It must be amazing to watch the view because you get a sunrise and sunset every 45 minutes. But around and around we go so obviously
1: OLED uh, is an amazing human being. I don't know if I could do it. How about you? I, I don't think so. Believe me. Uh, it's not. I don't care to try. All right. If people have questions for Dr. Sky, you can give us a call. We'll take your questions throughout the hour. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Uh, let's talk about the Japanese moonlander. It seems like Japan has been making great strides in their space program and space exploration in general. What's going going on with the Japanese moon lander?
2: Well, it's interesting, Frank. We found out that it had a successful soft landing on the moon, which was the part of the story. And then we find out later that one of the tiny, tiny little rovers that was deployed on the surface has a television camera. And unsuspecting to the world, that particular spacecraft actually landed upside down. Now, that's comedic because you imagine a spacecraft with all the technology they have behind it. The thing is found to be landing upside down and it's kind of reducing its ability, to say the least, to be able to utilize its solar panels because they happen to be on the top. But the mission wasn't intended to have the item stay up there for a long duration. So you get kind of a congratulations and you get, a, oh, my gosh, here's this big, expensive spacecraft going upside down as far as a landing on the surface of the moon. But it is interesting that the Japanese became, what, the fifth nation, of course, to land in soft land or even land on the moon. Let's not use soft land because one of the motors or engines I think had some difficulty forcing it into that position. But it's the beginning of amazing things that are going to be happening this year. I mean, the United States will be sending rovers to the moon, one called Viper, that will eventually be going to the south pole of the moon. That's a little bit more sophisticated so it can actually spend time on the moon. You know, we can send it around there like a remote controlled drone on the surface, doing imaging, doing experimentation. But one of the serious things, and it still may happen with the Japanese lander, it has cameras that seem to function for the time being before the batteries die. It's actually searching for something, a mineral on the surface of the moon, which is called olivine. Now, why is that important? Because many of the astronauts, including the astronauts on Apollo 17, Dr. Harrison Schmidt, who, by the way, was the only geologist to go to the moon, many people may know that, they found in their particular landing area of Apollo 17 Some strange orange material on the surface of the moon. And why is that important? Because it hopefully can answer some of the questions of where did the moon come from? When did it begin? As far as, you know, an impactor, we say that an object maybe struck the Earth the size of Mars. And many people thought incorrectly that the moon actually was birthed out of the Pacific Ocean, you know, this big expanse of ocean. But now we're going to look and see that Olivine, there may be some clues because it's found here on Earth, and we're finding it in sparingly, you know, in small quantities on the moon, it may give us an answer, hopefully, as
1: to where the moon came from and really how we did it. Is. Wow, that would be wild. All right, a lot of people queuing up to chat with you, 800 848 Let me begin with Bill in uh, – uh, um, actually, hang out. Yeah, Bill in Huntington. Hi, Bill.
2: Oh, hello. All right. Good morning. Now, on the south pole of the Earth, There's an American research station
3: big enough to hold 10 people. So you could write a mission proposal and write Dr. Sky on it and go down there and stay down there for a year. Okay. But in the summer, the sun never sets. It travels around the sky in a circle. In the winter, it never rises. But there's one day in the fall where the limb of the sun rides the horizon, okay?
2: Absolutely, yes. What would the, if there was a green flash there, what would it be like? Well, it would probably be one of the most impressive green flashes. And, Bill, thank you for the question. Let me define the, the green flash for people that may not know this. Many photographers out there want to see a setting sun along the surface, let's say, by where the sky meets the ocean. And I've seen this many times. Uh, have you seen one, Bill? I mean, have you
1: experienced one of these? You know, I, I actually before? put Bill, I, I actually disconnected Bill because oh. uh, we, our okay. lines are overjammed with people. Uh, uh, oh, but no, I've no, not I'll seen make one. Quick. I've not seen one. No, no, but it's very
2: interesting. So what it is, it's an atmospheric effect. So when the sun sets, the clarity of the, of the air can maybe enhance the visibility of the green flash. It's like a refraction of light. So to answer Bill's question, if it were in the opportunity of seeing it in Antarctica, it would certainly be, in my opinion, some of the cleanest, purest air that you have on the Earth. Because remember, Antarctica, Frank and Bill, is nothing but a really high desert. And we were talking about this with John Katsimatidis on his program, you know, the Cats Roundtable. We talk about this whole story about changes on the Earth, 18,000-year cycles, and we're mm-hmm. talking more about that on Sunday. But the green flash would be, in my opinion, much better observed for the clarity of the atmosphere because... Where on earth do you have the driest desert in the coldest part?
1: And that would be in Antarctica. One issue that we got into a couple of weeks ago that uh, people found your insight really invaluable on is what's going on with Boeing. Uh, The news broke yesterday that Alaska Airlines 737 may have left the Boeing factory missing bolts. That's not rumor. That's what the NTSB is saying. The bolts used to secure a panel that ultimately blew off this plane during a flight last month were removed at a Boeing factory and appear not to have been replaced, according to the the NTSB. What are the implications of that, Steve? Uh, Is that a concern for other people that may be taking flights that maybe, I don't know, uh, that uh, there there are not proper bolts on all the panels that uh, that they're going to be on? And is Boeing potentially looking at some bad lawsuits here? Well, I'm sure they could be looking at lawsuits. I'm not an attorney, but the problematic thing is,
2: let's talk reality here. That's a shame because you don't know. I don't know. We sit there on that aircraft. See, the interesting thing about that flight on Alaska Airlines is that the people that were sitting in those rows, normally when many people fly, they know there's a section in, let's say, the middle section of the plane or the back or the front. But if you're sitting in the middle section, they usually ask the passengers, I've been asked, you've been asked, if you'd be happy to help in the event that they needed to get people out. So what you see, Frank, is this door, and you know it's an exit door, but on this one, This particular airline, no fault of theirs, they ordered this airliner, this particular MAX airliner, without that extra door in the middle because of a smaller passenger load. So the point simply is this. You'd be sitting there by the window. It looks like a regular window seat. But unbeknownst to you, on the other side of that wall was a plug that was put in. So that's pretty unforgivable common sense that they forgot to put the secure bolts in there. So God forbid that airplane was higher than it was. I believe it's high altitude at the time that it blew was probably around sixteen thousand feet, so the pilots know what to do. They got down into the air where, of course, people could breathe, so they could make an emergency landing. But that is strange, and you know, not not to tell people on your show or any show that they shouldn't fly Boeing air. Right. These things are unforgivable. But yeah, I'm sure. That, and I think the first day, I don't know the exact numbers. I think the stock ticker for Boeing went down right after that. They oh, yeah. lost so much percentage of the value. I don't know the numbers, but you know, I just flew from Phoenix to Las Vegas over the uh, you know this past weekend. And I'm sitting there on a different aircraft. It was an Airbus A320, which, by the way, for those air fans out there, that's an aircraft that they use and they fly with a joystick. And I once had the opportunity to sit there in that one of those full motion simulators. And I was kind of nervous. I'm not a pilot. But they let me try this and said, okay. And it's so real. I mean, you feel the motion because it's moving on pistons and everything. You ne- never know you're not in a real airplane. So the point that I'm making is very simple. Even a novice like myself. The pilot was in the left seat. I was the co-pilot in the right seat. They said, okay, we're landing at the LAX airport. So he said, take the joystick. So I was like, okay. So I'm trying to navigate it and follow what he showed me on the instruments. But Frank, always honest with you in the audience, I hit the joystick a little too far to the right, and we went right into the Ooh, terminal. Wow. So thank God, it was a simulator. Absolutely. Anyway, I didn't do it on purpose.
1: A- absolutely. Hey, we're going to continue with Dr. Sky, Steve Cates, in a moment. If you have questions, you can give us a call, 800-848-9222. If you're interested in any of the content that we're talking about this hour, be sure to check out the Dr. Sky Experience. You can uh, find that on any podcast platform, or you can just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and uh, just search Dr. Sky. It comes right up. We're going to continue with your questions, and I have a number of questions about the sun, about space travel, about space debris, space junk, what it all means for us, and the future of the American space program. We'll get into that and more straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. He's your numero uno. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Murano Black hole sun, won't you come and wash away.
1: Singing black hole sun. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, join our Facebook group. Just uh, go on Facebook, search Murano Radio Fans and Haters, and we post all the bumper music that we play each and every. Day, and uh, there's always a lot of talk about black holes. They've always been pretty controversial, and until recently, there was some debate about whether they were actually real. We have the go to guy when it comes to black holes and just about everything else on with us this hour, Steve Cates, aka Dr. Sky. Steve, there was an interesting article in the New York Times about that famous black hole getting a second look, and they say repeated studies of of the supermassive black hole in the galaxy, Messier 87, or Messier 87 for hockey fans, confirm that it continues to act as Einstein's theory predicted it would. Uh, for those of us that haven't read Einstein in some time, what did he tell us about black holes, and what do we know about this particular black hole?
2: Well, the simple physics of this is interesting, and we could go on for hours, but just to give a quick synopsis, if you were out in space and you happen to look out the window, let's say, of the spacecraft, and you would look at this black hole from a distance, and I'm talking about a far distance, nothing like solar system distance. It would look like this perfectly round, black circular ball bearing, if you want to describe it. The area that you see around the edges would be this accretion disk, or the edge of the black hole. In other words, it's where the outer edge of what it's pulling in reaches this point where it's not pulling anything in. But it's a little more complicated than that. Let's, let's identify what M87 is. I've observed it many times in the telescope. If you and I were looking at it at a dark night, you'd say, oh, wow, Steve, that's a smudge in the telescope. Well, it's 55 million light years away. But it's incredible. If you were to fly there in a spacecraft, this is absurd. It would take one trillion Earth years just to get there. But what's the point of this whole thing? It's 51% larger than the Milky Way, about 132,000 light years in diameter. But what's going on there? It's the first time we've ever imaged a black hole. In other words, it's all been theoretical. So what Einstein is saying basically is this, is that all forms of electromagnetic energy, light, heat, everything, would be pulled into this. We don't know where it goes. We have no concept. Some say on the other side, it's a wormhole to another transportation part of the universe. Many sci-fi shows have, of course, used that as a main mantra. But what's M87 is so fascinating. What is it? It's like a spheroidal elliptical galaxy that just contains so many you know millions of stars inside of it but by no means Frank is it the largest black hole that we know i mean even though that's massive here's one that's even off the charts beyond this it's crazy one called TON 618 it's the quote largest black hole they've ever discovered it has 60 billion solar masses imagine 60 billion times the mass of the sun and then they claim there's one called Phoenix A that's 100 billion suns but in the simplest way to conclude that it's that nothing escapes from that. Now the horrible part about this, and Hawking described this in some detail, he said if you were to get near a black hole, not sure of the distance because we don't know the size, and remember the Milky Way has one supermassive black hole called Sagittarius A star, and it's only 27,000 light years away, not to scare the audience, but the closest black hole is only about 1,560 light years away, here's what he said and others, As you're sitting in the spacecraft, the spacecraft would become a spaghettified entity. What does that mean? It's like if you held your hand out, you would unravel as if you were like silly string going into the thing. It was the most horrific, horrible way to go. So it's a warpage of space time, and we don't really know what goes on inside that. But finally, I know this is a long explanation, but it's so fascinating, and I hope everybody appreciates it because it's an ongoing study. Einstein had the basic understandings of what this is in space. But Hawking said this for the longest time. John Wheeler, who actually was one of them that coined the term black hole. This is interesting. Hawking in his later years said that we thought black holes don't leak. But he said black holes have hair. Don't laugh, folks. What they mean by that is that things do escape from black holes. And one of the things Hawking was working on is that some of these black holes can evaporate and then reappear. So isn't that phenomenal that in our solar system, who knows, maybe a mini black hole could come through the universe, popping in and out of reality. But it's so amazing. But M87 is the first place we've actually imaged. We have an image of this blackness around this orange object deep within the core of M87. Amazing. Eight hundred
3: eight
1: four eight ninety two twenty two. Steve Cates is our guest for our Cosmic Conversations. Let me begin with Robert. Robert, what's on your mind?
0: Good, Good evening. Honor to talk to you. Um, Thank you. I've seen a couple of total solar eclipses, like the one in yes. southern Illinois, and I know in early April, I think it's April eighth, we have one that's going to sweep across upstate New York. Absolutely. Um, what what advice do you have for those of us that are sort of total eclipse junkies? Uh, I guess one of the key things is clouds, and that's sort of unpredictable. But what's what are your thoughts for those of us that might want to? Head north and go see
2: that. Robert, I love you like a brother. You have eclipse fever, and that's a great thing, and I just hope everybody experiences this. The governor of New York, Governor Hochul, has put out this big mandate to have like a whole eclipse party in all these places you're celebrating as many others are. But, Robert, here's the point. This may be something interesting that everybody needs to know now. If you look at that eclipse path from southern Texas all the way up to Maine, the highest probability of clear to partly cloudy skies is in southern Texas. Now, that's where we're going to be. Frank, you know this. I'm asked to be the MC of an event called the Text Clips mm-hmm. Music Festival, down in a little tiny town called Junction. But here's the point: with the El Nino running strong, I'm getting a lot of back channel conversations with people saying, "Hey, be careful because that area that's predicted to have the best weather could be inundated by El Nino." And guess what? The regions like Buffalo, like you were talking about, they're going to get three minutes and 45 seconds of totality. That's incredible. So, what I'm saying is, those areas to the north in April usually have a cloudier situation. It may be just the opposite, Robert, of what's going on right now. So, it's anybody's guess. But here's my suggestion for anybody that gets near an eclipse. We've done this. You plant your stuff on the ground, you got your cameras, you got all your gear, your family. Be free to be able to travel within, say, 20 miles, because I've done this in Canada in 1972. We had to get up because a thundercloud was over the, near the sun, so we took off in the car, and luckily we did. So micro weather could change it, but who knows? We're going to be in Texas, but everybody else up in the Northeast, you may still get the best weather because of this unfortunate. Well,
1: look at what's going on, right, guys, in California. Right mm-hmm. now, here mm-hmm. in Arizona, it's raining like the, back of the Dickens. So we can't well, exactly excellent. we can't exactly give Robert a specific point that he's guaranteed no. for the best view at
2: this point. nobody knows that and i would say this way hey for everybody in new york just a quick summary from erie pennsylvania buffalo is going to get the three minutes 45 seconds in totality rochester syracuse gets it watertown lake placid up in montpelier in, in vermont New hampshire and maine still some really good opportunities as long as maybe the weather forecast is uh, conducive to the northeast who knows
1: We've been talking a great deal about space junk or space debris, and the more articles that are written about this, it seems that it's becoming increasingly problematic. What are we hearing about space debris, and what are the reports that there's so much of it that it may actually have an effect on the Earth's magnetic field?
2: Well, this is interesting. Graduate students around the world and PhD candidates are working on this concept, and here's what they say. This is a quick summary. With the number of atmospheric you know, spacecraft in orbit, and the number of these that come down, they're not just you know to attack Musk. I mean, there's so many thousands of these Starlinks out there. But the point is, as they're going to deteriorate and disintegrate, what they're seeing over time is more and more of those pieces of, of space debris will be coming down in the form of little metallic particles, maybe aluminum, metal shavings, microscopic things. And here's the problem: over over time. They could possibly weaken the Earth's magnetic field up in an area called a magnetosphere. And with these mega constellations, Frank, of like up to soon, up to maybe a half a million satellites, this could weaken the ability to shield us, get a lot of this, from cosmic rays and solar storms, because we're tampering with what Mother Nature has set in motion. And we're very, very fortunate if you really think about the Earth in a dynamic sphere. We have this bubble of magnetic protection. That shields us from, like, whenever we see these big blasts from the sun, like one I'd like to talk about, hopefully, you know, in in this hour, if we still have time on the sun, that's what's going on up there. So more and more of this space debris, once it quote comes through the atmosphere, doesn't 100% incinerate, and that great area in the South Pacific, you know, that Point Nemo as they call it, if you look on the map, if you look way over to the other side of the Pacific Ocean, that's way down, let's say, from Central America off the coast of chile that's considered to be a satellite graveyard where they try to aim satellites and spacecraft but the point is imagine what could happen in the future we'll have this uh, changeable magnetic field and maybe less you know intense, less excuse me protection from cosmic rays and solar storms that's quite
1: fascinating 800-848-9222 john calling from reno nevada hello john Well, John apparently didn't find our conversation too captivating. Nikki calling from New Mexico. What's your question, Nikki?
3: Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, yes, it's really you. an honor to, to speak to Dr. Sky and to um, Frank. So, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. So I have a question. I am a, um, I moved now uh, here to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and uh, mm-hmm. I and it it is it's just a gorgeous place with the most beautiful sunset. Something I I, I really really. Uh, mesmerizing but I have a, we have also most beautiful starry uh, sky there is something up there that uh, it really intrigues me uh, so there is this one rectangle each corner of this rectangle has a star in the middle so mm-hmm. the uh, like a vertical vertical there are three stars right in the middle Mm -hmm. of this rectangle what kind of constellation is that and and uh, right below the three stars in the middle Mm -hmm. they're all beautifully aligned really 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 nicely yes there is like a kind of the the like a more small stars maybe like a a, really 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 beautiful but I'm so intrigued. Every night I look at this, every night.
2: Well, first of all, you're blessed in the skies of New Mexico, particularly Santa Fe, one of my favorite places. But what I'm speculating without, you know, knowing too much more about the actual location of the sky, but this is my best guess it. If it's a now thing that you're seeing, you know, like you say, every night now, you're probably looking deep into the constellation Lion. It has three impressive belt stars that are all lined up. And right around it, as you describe accurately, there are other stars. But the three stars are named Alnitak, Alnilam, and Nintaka. And if you look into the mythology of Orion, the hunter, it's very fascinating. That's his belt. And the area that you're describing to me, as best as I can recollect in this short time, is you're looking at an area just below that where there's a star field. This is the location where the Orion Nebula is in the Sword of Orion. if you have a, Do you have a pair of binoculars, by chance, anything like that?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm more than likely getting it because I'm so into it. Like I go oh. out at night just to look at this, and everywhere I go, if you walk around town. Luckily, I I live in downtown Santa Fe, or oh, very yes. close by. I am so blessed because everywhere I go, I see it.
2: Well, that's amazing. amazing. And if you'd like, if I may do this, Frank, if I may give you my my email it's dr yes. sky just d r s k y dr sky show at gmail dot com I'd be more than happy okay. to respond back to you in a fino, you know, in a more detailed way and maybe oh, even provide you with a sample star chart through ah. the uh, email to help you navigate ah. the beautiful skies of Santa Fe. my favorite place for food too, Frank, they have some amazing, amazing you know food up there,
1: really and Yes. it's,
2: just, oh, yes. it's, it's outstanding. I mean, not to take them a lot of time here, but I remember going into one of the cafes in New Mexico there in San Francisco, and it was a small little mom-and-pop restaurant, and you know what? They cook this amazing Mexican food more like New Mexico style, and what's that? Well, when I tasted the salsa that they had, I just put my finger, I know this sounds a little inappropriate, my little pinky finger to sample it. It was so hot that I literally had to drink what I considered to be almost the amount of water in Lake Mead just to cool down my It was great, I love spicy food, but I'd be happy to answer you if you email me and be happy but to they, give you more knowledge.
3: But Dr. Skye, I'm so grateful for 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 this. I, I mean, I am a long time listener, but kind of mm-hmm. the first time that I, uh, I got to talk to you today, and I am so uh, tremendously happy, and I am so blessed that I got to share this with you. That's so, nice. Oh, thank uh, you for
2: being so kind. And may I get, what is uh, your name? I didn't even get that. And, okay.
3: Well, um, I guess the uh, the engineer there had uh, some mm-hmm. trouble to get my name. My my first name mm-hmm. is Nicoletta.
2: Nicoletta, Beautiful well, thank name. you for joining us. Beautiful awesome. Thank you, Nicoletta. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>
0: thank you. you Appreciate so it. it.
3: it is it is d r Skyshow@gmail.com, at gmail.com, correct? Right, drskyshow at gmail.com. be
2: happy to answer not only your question, uh, but anybody that has
1: commentary. Thank you, uh, Nicolette, appreciate it. I'm going to try and get in a few other folks here at 800-848-9222. Steve, one thing I, I was particularly sure. interested in is uh, NASA's recent announcement about a so-called super-Earth that may be able to sustain life. I talked about it the other day, but obviously I'm just spitballing here. I don't have your level of expertise. NASA recently announced that this exoplanet, which is about one and a half times as wide as Earth, orbits within a conservative habitable zone around a parent star, meaning it could have the conditions to sustain life. What is this, uh, Steve? Is this Earth 2? Is this where our uh, children and grandchildren are going to be colonizing?
2: Well, I wish we could say yes, I mean, so much more research has to be done, but kudos to things that are going on, not just with James Webb. Let's go back as they looked at the Kuiper telescopes, they looked at all these different telescopes that have helped us identify these exoplanets. And, you know, the discovery is a little more complicated than maybe most people would think. You know, the James Webb can image objects, but most of this type of discovery, you know, is found by what they call the transiting method. What is that? They actually see a telescope with an image of, let's say, a parent star. And what they're seeing is a star, meaning a planetary object now, crossing that star field. what they're able to do is try to get a spectrum of what that's made of as best as they can because nobody has a thermometer like a turkey thermometer or something that you use in the oven to see oh the temperatures ready that's done so the reality is we're discovering more about this but over the last month or two i know we've talked about a few that are really exceptional one is a planetary object that may be 100 percent lava i don't think that's a good candidate for life like you and i know it unless they have asbestos suits and they have them for everybody but the opportunity to find in that habitable zone called the Goldilocks zone, hopefully we'll get an object. But I think in quick summary, Frank, the best candidates right now for any type of what we think is life as we think we know it, or life as we do know it, is the TRAPPIST-1 system. So people should look up the name TRAPPIST-1. It's a star system that's not too many light years away. I think it's probably some 20 plus light years from us. But the interesting part about it, there's seven individual objects that are orbiting this parent star, but what's even more bizarre, the Trappist-1 primary star is not something of a very hot nature. It could be, probably more than likely, a red dwarf star, and we may have it all wrong that we're looking in the wrong place, because these red dwarf stars may theoretically still have the ability to sustain some sort of life as opposed to what we think a regular sun-like star is. The beat goes on, and... I don't know. There's probably one over 4,000 exoplanets that have been named, and maybe my number's wrong because I'm too conservative. But there you go.
1: We're going to continue with Steve Cates, AKA Dr. Sky, in just a moment. We'll take your calls. Uh, we have two open lines 800 848 9222. This is the, uh, the other side of midnight where we're all having cosmic conversations with Dr. Sky.
0: The other side of midnight. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I've told you about living in the U.S. Of a. Don't you know that I'm a gangster of love? Let me tell you people that I found a new way And I'm tired of all this talk about love And the same old story with a new set of words About the good and the bad and the poor And the times keep on changing So I'm keeping on top of every bad cat Who walks through my door I'm a space
1: cowboy that you are ready I'll bet you weren't ready for that. Space Cowboy by the Steve Miller Band. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, just join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. We also have a poll going at Twitter where so far it is overwhelming. The people seem to think that Pluto should be reinstated as a planet. If you want to vote, go to... uh, Go to my Twitter, at Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Uh, feel free to retweet, get your folks to uh, vote as well. My guest is our go-to guy when it comes to going to space. That is Steve Cates, or as we call him, Dr. Sky. An edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and a terrific Podcaster, and you can hear his work at the Doctor Sky Experience. Just search that on any podcast app or go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and search Doctor Sky. Steve, you alluded to that film that you had seen, uh, ISS. I'm a science fiction movie fiend. I I just can't get enough of it. Tell me about this film, ISS. Is it worth checking out? And are there any elements of realism that if people do see the film, they should be on the lookout for?
2: Well, yes, categorically, I think it's worth seeing if you're a space fan and love that. I thought the shooting of that, you know, cinematography, I think, is really cool because I had the impression, and I was wrong, as I'm sitting there with Diana, my partner, we both looked and we said, wow, that must have been shot on the ISS, but we find out that it wasn't. It was actually done with special effects, and they do this by hanging the, you know, supporting the different actors on different type of string systems or whatever, but the whole premise, I won't go through exactly the details of the movie, but I thought it was realistic in the sense that they actually show a part of the International Space Station. And of course, I've not been there, but there's an area called the cupola. And what is that? Imagine being in this windowed area, like this magnificent room that you can sit inside the ISS with all almost 360 degree rooms I mean, a windows area. That was visually very good. But the underlying story, I'll just leave you with this, it's that there's Russian cosmonauts and Americans on board, and unfortunately something happens down on Earth. So we find out in current real life, the astronauts, Russian cosmonauts, and American astronauts do seemingly get along, but the rest of that story, you'd have to see it, and I think it is worth seeing. I thought it was too short of a movie, but in, in all due respect, it was interesting
3: on the 800
1: 848 Mike in New Jersey has a question about something I have a question about as well. Hello, Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi, yes.
3: Uh, yes, uh, Dr. Sky, much love. Uh, today in the New York Times uh, Tuesday Science section, they had a yes, pictorial, um, sort of like an homage for the little helicopter that had been flying around um uh the planet mars and my understanding is that many of the parts were like off the shelf do you have any comments on that sir
2: i sure do a few years ago i don't know if frank knows this we interviewed the chief test pilot for that particular you know unit the little little drone helicopter from jpl but what's interesting mike about it is you're right it's kind of like an off-the-shelf build But this is interesting. It only weighs four pounds and it's 19 inches high and it's done 72 flights on Mars. And, you know, the mainstream media really didn't cover this in great detail. But still, the first time that we've flown anything on another world, it even has a little swatch of material from the original Wright Brothers flyer to commemorate the first, you know, the human flight by as far as, you know, man flight. But what's interesting about it is it's grounded. Because on one of its subsequent flights on January 18th, one of the blades, I believe, got nicked to the point where it can't fly anymore. But it did a lot of amazing things. And some of the things it did, it got to an altitude of 79 feet in one of its missions. It got a long flight of 2 minutes and 49 seconds on a flight called Flight 12 of the 72. And it actually flew a distance of over 2,300 feet at 22 miles per hour. So... That's totally amazing, but here's the most amazing fact that I can share with both of you in the audience. The rotor blades on that have to spin. The tips of them are spinning at 65% the speed of sound. Why? Because Mars has an extremely thin atmosphere, and if you were to think of how that would have to fly on Earth, it's like if you had a helicopter that would fly, get a little of this height, at 112,000 feet, so kudos to the designers, don't you think, Mike? That's amazing. Absolutely. But we ain't seen nothing yet because the next generation of this is something called Dragonfly. It will be a nuclear-powered UAV or or a drone. That's a bad word for it. It's actually bigger than that. And it'll be sent to the uh, Saturn's moon Titan to fly around there uh, to do research. So kudos to Ingenuity, and uh, it's a
1: great question and comment, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Steve, one of the things that um, we've been Mm -hmm. paying attention to are these close calls when it comes to asteroids. They say on Friday that uh, an asteroid about the size of the Empire State Building came pretty close to Earth. Thankfully, no collision or anything Mm -hmm. like that. What can you tell us about that particular near miss and, I don't know, how ready the planet is to deal with these sort of asteroid collisions or potential collisions? Well, sadly, but always truthful with you in the audience, we're not prepared at all because we had
2: something interesting, a little asteroid called 2024 BX1, this tiny little asteroid, maybe a meter in diameter. Astronomers found that only hours, this is amazing, only hours before it entered the atmosphere, they predicted that it would actually hit the Earth, and they told us exactly where it would come true over the skies of Berlin and Germany. And sure enough, as the prediction was, it came to the ground. People found pieces of it which is quite fascinating because that, to me, is just totally amazing science. But we're not prepared for anything on a large scale. That's a sad but truthful comment. I mean, I wonder what we would do, or if it even may be told the truth. I know you delve into the UFO subjects on both sides of the equation, and that's a great subject, Frank, but we're not really prepared for something like that. And, you know, it's just a matter of time before another object uh, comes out of the back end of the sun, that's the danger spot. In other words, in the daylight sky where the sun is, an object that's coming, let's say, from beyond the sun, in the glare of the sun,
1: we don't really have a way to track it if it's coming in that fast or who knows, maybe that big. Let me squeeze in at least one more call here. Robert in Suffolk has been patiently holding. Hi, Robert.
3: Hi, Frank and Steve. How many arms are in the Milky Way? I've seen classical descriptions years ago like it yes. was uh, similar to uh, spiral galaxies like Andromeda. You know, mm-hmm. Lately, I've been seeing it's a barred spiral with mm-hmm. bands which are like broken off the spiral. Yes. How many? Well, this is one of, yeah,
2: this is, well, nobody really knows. I mean, this is an honest answer always. That's all I give is honesty here because if you don't know, and that's what I'm going to tell you, but here's what we do think we know. If you take a look, the hardest thing is to understand the shape of this galaxy because we live in this big cloud. We're in the Orion arm. We're about 27,000 light years from the core. But we think this is interesting. The original concept of the Milky Way that it was just a round spiral as you'd look almost like a perfect circle. You see perfect circular spiral. But now we know that there's a big bar, thus called a barred spiral, in the middle of the galaxy that juts out. But some estimates say five to eight different different arms of the galaxy here in the Milky Way. But there's a lot of research going on right now, and there's a big article, and I'm sorry I can't recall it right now, but it talks about a new way that astronomers are trying to detect the cloud of gas that's around the Milky Way, the true shape of the Milky Way. We know it's a barred spiral with those big bars that come out of it, unlike a true 100% spiral. And we're also getting a better mapping because around our galaxy, there's this amazing group of objects called globular clusters. And they're made without going into too much detail right now. They're made of old classified stars, like these class two old stars. And they go like, you know, the old description, uh, Robert, of an atom, you see the little electrons going up and down around the core. It's that those globular clusters actually go up and down through the core of the Milky Way. So we're trying our best to understand what the true shape is And it's still kind of unknown, but slowly we're kind of getting there. And we have two satellite galaxies to our Milky Way, both the small and large Magellanic Cloud, which are actually galaxies that have, what, hundreds of thousands, maybe even a billion stars in them. The beat goes on, and hopefully we'll get to know in our lifetime what the two shapes.
1: Steve, there is never enough time whenever we are together. I very much yes. appreciate the time this morning and the insight, and help. hope uh, folks check out the Dr. Sky experience. And uh, hopefully if people have some interesting questions, they will take advantage of that email address that you gave out and reach out yes, to sir. you directly.
2: Well, thank you, Frank. Good to be with you. And uh, lots up there with the Dr. Sky experience on current
1: sky events and other things that happen in our world. Thank Uh, you. uh, Absolutely. And we are just getting started. We've got a lot more to go, believe me. Until then, in the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars, but always keep your feet on the ground.